Genesis chapter 2, as we begin reading in verse 18, says, Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I remember reading an article in the paper many years ago now at this point. It was actually somebody up in the falls, and it was in the Daily Journal. And she was a pastor, and she was actually, I think, submitting an excerpt from something somebody had written in Canada. So I don't remember who the actual author of the piece was. But I remember that the piece went on to talk about how that within the Bible you see everything under the sun in regards to marriage. There's everything from incest and polygamy and rape and all these different things. Her point at the end was that because of that, there really is no such thing as biblical marriage. When people talk about biblical marriage or traditional marriage, they said there really is no such thing because in the Bible you, you find everything in the Bible. And I remember thinking, how foolish. Because the problem is that, yes, you do find everything in the Bible. You can look in the Bible and you will find incest and you will find rape and you will find polygamy and you will find a whole gamut of things that affect marriage, sexuality, and relationships within society. But it doesn't mean that God's endorsing them. There's a difference between describing what is happening and prescribing what you want to happen. In Genesis chapter 2, we find God prescribing what He wants for that marriage relationship and why He created it to begin with. In other places, you'll find that also God prescribing what He wants out of our activities and our relationships and our behaviors and our attitudes towards one another. But you also find him describing what actually does happen throughout the world. And so it describes a lot of negative behavior. You know, within the Bible, you can also find people lying. It doesn't mean God's in favor of lying. You can find people committing murder. It doesn't mean he's endorsing murder. So just because he describes things that people do does not mean that he does not have a definite idea of what he wants to happen. In fact, if we look at what Jesus said about marriage, Matthew in chapter 19 He was asked a question about marriage and divorce and remarriage, and Jesus went back to Genesis to give him the answer, back to the very beginning. It says, The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus, when asked about marriage, went all the way back to Genesis to give them their answer. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31, the Apostle Paul does the same thing. In Ephesians 5.31, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so by Jesus' time, the Apostle Paul's times, things hadn't changed. God still wanted the same thing out of marriage that he wanted back in the beginning when he instituted it. That's why Jesus would quote 
from where the passage we're looking at today. That's why the Apostle Paul would quote from the passage that we're looking at today. And that's why we need to be digging into the passage that we're looking at today. Because even today, God still has the same purposes in marriage and He still has the same intention that He wants in our life. And we would do well to go back to the beginning and learn the value. And so that's what we're going to consider this morning is this God-honoring marriage. There is a God-honoring marriage. There is a biblical marriage in the Bible and we're going to discover it here this morning or probably more remind ourselves of what it is. Well, as we go through this passage and deal with the subject of marriage, there's going to be three different aspects. Married people need to pay attention to this this morning. Obviously, we're in the middle of marriage relationships. Unmarried people need to pay attention to this this morning because it affects possibly your future. And not only that, but it affects the society in which we live. Even if you're a single person, marriage and the family is the bedrock of the community in which we live. And as the family prospers, society prospers. That impacts you whether you're married, unmarried, whether you've been married and now are a widow or divorced. No matter what your situation, this impacts you. It stirs the values within our society and it impacts our whole society. The first aspect that we see in it is unity. Throughout the passage, it is very clear that this is what God is doing as he, as he takes Adam and he takes a rib out of Adam and he makes it into Eve and then he brings Eve to Adam. God is making this unity. He's taking two. He says, the two shall become one flesh. This man and this woman will become one in their relationship with each other. The first thing that we need to notice about this unity is it is a relational unity. Because it starts with a, with a phrase that God says, it is not good that man should be alone. In the passage that we've already looked at back in chapter 1, on the different days of creation, he would often say, and behold, it was very good. Five different times in chapter 1, God would create something and then step back and look at it and say, man, that's good. At the end of all of it, when he gets it all created in chapter 1, verse, I think it's 31, God looks at all of it and says, it's very good. Now remember, the way Genesis is written gives a little summary and then kind of expands on it. And then another little summary and expands. So when he says it is very good, that already includes all of the creation, man being male and female. So everything's all package deal. But when we get to Genesis chapter 2, it kind of backs up again and gives us more detail about creating the man and the woman. And now for the first time, we see God saying something is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. Everything else that God made so far, it's good, it's good, it's good, made Adam. It's not good that he's alone. What is he saying it's not good about? Well, what he's saying it's not good about has to be relationship. Adam is good in his makeup, his nature. He is, they haven't sinned yet. He's not unholy. He is holy. He was a good creation, but he's not completed yet. Mankind as a whole is not completed. He needs somebody. He needs, and he has them name all the animals and all that kind of stuff. What he needs isn't a pet. He doesn't need a dog or a cat. He doesn't need a pet. He needs, he needs a wife. That's what he needs. And so he says it's not good for him to be alone. Now, what I have to gather from that is that it's got to be talking about his relationship. And you know, when you think about it, it makes sense. Because even within God himself, there is relationship. Man is made in the image of God. And within God, what do you see? You see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There's relationship within God himself. And so God makes man in his own image, but says, you know what, he's not complete yet. There needs to be relationship for man. And so he creates Eve and then he starts to establish the family. In fact, I think you could really go so far as to say that the entire family is made in the image of God. Because within God, you see the Son submitting to the Father and the Holy Spirit proceeding from both the Father and the Son. 
throughout Scripture. And in the family, you see the wife in submission to the husband and children proceeding from the two of them. And so he has purpose and reason for the way he structures the things that come up. But you know what? This idea of relationship, God does acknowledge within the Bible that not every relationship is always good. You know, I think of the book of Proverbs, chapter 21, verse 19. It says, It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. If he intended for Adam to live with a fretful woman that was going to cause him grief, God would not have said it's not good for man to be alone. You see, the point that I'm making is that God, in his desire for us, wants so much more for us than that brokenness of relationship. He wants us to have unity within our relationship. I remember after speaking on marriage here one time, I remember Greg came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, I heard somebody say one time, it's better to be single wishing you were married than married wishing you were single. You see, that kind of reiterates the point. God, in his desire for us in that creation, says it's not good for man to be alone. He needs a unity. He needs, he needs somebody to be with him, that they could be one, a unified relationship. But not only... Is there a relational unity? There's also a structural unity. Because he goes on, he says, I will make a helper for him. Which This word helper, we're going to get a couple different points from this word helper. The first one is it recognizes that there's structure to the family unit. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything, to their husbands. But then you go on from there, and it deals with the husband's responsibilities. And it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. On the one hand, God says when I'm going to make Adam need something, I'm going to make something for him. He acknowledges I'm going to make a helper, a counterpart for him. So it acknowledges that there's structure within God's family. And you know what? It makes sense. Everything in a society has structure that's successful. Successful corporations have CEOs. Successful teams have coaches. Successful classrooms have teachers. Everything has headship. Everything has leadership. And God wants for His family to be productive. And He wants His family to have, it has purpose. And so therefore it has structure within the relationship. You know what? Sometimes people balk at this idea. But it's really not a problem. You know what I find within marriage relationships when the problem gets to be is when the focus is on the other person. When the wife says about the husband, he's not leading the way that he should. He's not loving me the way that he should. And the husband says about the wife, she's not submitting the way that she should. And she should be submitting and she should be doing this. And you notice within that passage in Ephesians that when it talks about the responsibilities of the wife, it's not really talking to the husband. It's talking to the wife. And when it's talking about the responsibilities to the husband, it's not talking to the wife. In other words, it doesn't say wives. Make your husbands love you. Husbands, make your wives submit to you. But he tells each one to focus on what they're supposed to be doing. And you know what I found? When you get each person focused on what they should be doing, amazing things happen. You know, Lisa and I have talked about this before, and she said, you know what? I enjoy submitting to you 
when I feel like I'm loved. And you know what? I enjoy loving her when I feel like I'm respected. Now, should I love her even when I don't feel like I'm respected? Absolutely. Should she still respect me even when she doesn't feel like I deserve it? Absolutely. Built into this marriage relationship is exactly the formula of what God did within our lives. When He created us, He created us for certain functions and certain purposes. One's not really greater than the other. The example that it gives us here is Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The church submits to Christ. We don't have a problem as the church in submitting to Christ. We're great with that. We want to do that. Jesus Christ Himself within the Godhead, He doesn't have a problem with submitting to the Father. He's happy to be in the position of submission to the Father. It's not about being more of a person or less of a person or greater of a person. It's just about purpose and functionality and what God wants us to do. And as we consider that within marriage, you know, God just wired us that way. You know, women are wired to have these receptors out to, to feeling for affection and love from their husbands. And I, I know from my own personal experience If we're involved in a discussion on something, there's some issue that we're dealing with, if I respond about that issue toward Lisa in a way that is unloving, then that issue has just become the secondary issue. You know what the main issue is now? Our relationship. What is my love for her? And it should be. She's programmed to respond to love. And so when God tells me, love her like Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, He's programming me to meet her needs of that feeling of love. The men are wired a little bit differently. And so you know what happens? We're wired for respect. So when we feel the adoration of our wives, when we feel respected and admired by our wives, then we stand tall. You know what? When we feel disrespected, we withdraw. Because you know what? We're wired for that respect. If we're feeling disrespected here, we clam up and we look towards something else. Why? Because in doing something else, I can succeed there and I'll feel the respect that I want, I'm, I'm longing to feel. But, and that's why wives so many times, when you, when you recognize that there's a problem, there's a rift in the relationship, and you want to talk about it, we're not there to talk about it. You want to know why? We're not good at talking. We're not good in that arena. We don't succeed well in that arena. So when we're lacking respect, you know what we do? We drift toward an arena where we'll get it. We drift toward an arena where I can achieve something, I can accomplish something, and I'll feel the respect that I'm trying to feel. We're not consciously doing it. It's just the way we're programmed. And so we need that respect. And so God in His command to the husbands and wives, He's actually programming us to meet the most basic need In our spouse. When you get to this point, when you are loving your wife and wives, when you are respecting your husbands, when your relationship is good, there's there's not even a discussion. There's not even a thought about who's in charge. Because you know how it works when it works right? Is that I have to make a decision, but I don't even think about making the decision alone. You want to know why? Because if I'm loving my wife like Christ loved the church, then I need to know how that's going to affect her. And I want to know how she feels about it. I want to know how she thinks about it. And you know what? While I'm trying to find out what she thinks about it and how she feels about it, she feels very loved. You know what? The decisions just happen. At the end, do I need to say as the head of the house, boy, I made that decision? No. Who cares? The decision just got made as we related together with one another. And we came to a good conclusion so actually when all these things when when the commands of God are working within our lives there is no friction there there isn't this who's in charge there isn't this 
holding somebody, putting somebody in their place. There isn't any of that. And so that all, the whole issue, the thing that people get sometimes so upset about just goes away. You know what? I'll guarantee you this. If within your relationship you're having struggle over who's in charge and who's making decisions, your problem is not the structure of the family. Your problem is deeper than that. It's something else that's causing the issues. And that's where it needs to be dealt with. So there's a structural unity. Not only is there a structural unity, but notice he says, I'll create a helper. So that means there also has to be a practical, a practical unity. In other words, there's things that God wants to accomplish. And he indicates those things right within the passage or within the previous passage. Because what did he tell them to do? Be fruitful and multiply and go out and fill up the earth. Subdue the earth. In other words, we all have jobs to do. We have, we have jobs to do in, in, first of all, within our family. Making a God-honoring family. That takes some leadership. and That takes involvement on both the husband's part and the wife's part. And so there's this practical thing that God wants us to do in the rearing of our families. And you know what? The family is the most important. If you're going to ask me, what do you want to fall apart in your life? Your career or your family? I want my career to fall apart. No question about it. I want my family solid. That's where we're needed most. You know what? In your career, something can happen to you within a week probably. They'll have you replaced by somebody else. Within a year, they're not thinking about you too much anymore. That won't happen in your family. In your family, you're not replaceable. Raising up a family that will bring honor and glory to God, that will be responsible and accountable, and that is what God has for us to do. Now, our responsibilities go beyond that as well. We also have to work jobs and things like that as well. Those are important also. Another way of bringing honor and glory to God, because He told mankind that they needed to subdue the creation. And when you look at it, every, every job that we have that's out here is one way of either a service for other human beings. It's, a, it's some way of subduing the creation. And so there's a practical aspect to the family, a practical unity. And you know what? That's one thing. The husbands and wives need to work together at accomplishing their goals for their family and their, and their goals for their future and all these things. We need to be a unity. We need to work together in these kinds of things. Well, not only is there a practical unity, but lastly, there's a material unity. God didn't go back to the dirt to make the woman. He went to Adam so that in Adam we have all of mankind. Eve would be made from the rib of Adam, from part of Adam. In fact, that's one of the things that Adam was so enamored with. He says, now she, she is, and if you want to put it as just in our language today, we just say, you know what, she is mine. She is me. She is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and even what he calls her is in reference to him. He's man, she's woman. It shows a connection there. And so even the title that he, that he gives to her at that point connects him and relationally to him. So she's made of the same material. What did God say? He says, I need to make a helper that is fit for him. He had him name all the animals. He said, there's nobody fit for him. He says, I need to make somebody that's a good fit. And so he went right to material source of Adam himself and took his rib and made that into Eve. And the two were literally one flesh. Because that's what God wants them to be. He wants them to be compatible. In the parentheses on the screen, there are all the things that you experience because of what God did. In a relational unity, we find companionship. In a structural unity, we find clarity. In a practical unity, we find partnership. And in a material unity, we find compatibility. What Adam is saying there is, she was made from me 
and she was made for me. We're one. What does he want for marriage? He wants unity. He wants us to be one. The two shall become one flesh. And then also we see a priority. Priority. Because he says, for this cause, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So there's a leaving, there's a pushing away, and there's a cleaving, a pulling close. And he says, this is what's going to happen. Now, in your life up to that point, what is the dominant relationships within your life? The most important relationship in your life from birth up until then is with your parents. And God says, all right, when this relationship takes place, when it's time for the husband to come to the wife, he says, this relationship will now take a back seat. This one will be pushed away. This one will be brought close. One of the best things for our marriage was when we went off to Bible college. I love my parents. I love Lisa's parents. I love all of our families and that, no doubt about it. But you that distance of moving from Washington to Minnesota, and I'm not saying everybody should move way away from their family. There's a lot of downsides to it, too. When we moved from Washington to Minnesota, and we're gone for the first four years, and you know what we noticed? Is that we just cleaved together so much more. When we moved off to college, we already had two kids, one on the third one on the way. So it's not like we were new at this marriage thing. We'd been married for several years. But when we had to be just us, we grew so much tighter, so much closer together. In order for us to make this new family unit, there has to be a breaking away a little bit. Not that the relationships that are ended, not that you still don't want advice. All that stuff is still good. But you know what? This has to become the priority relationship. Up to that point in your life, your mom and your dad have been the biggest, the most important relationship in your life. But that now is going to take a back seat to this person as you make that person the priority in your life. And you know what? That person needs to stay that priority in your life. That person needs to be in priority above your jobs. That person needs to be in priority above your other interests and your hobbies. That person needs to be in priority even above your children. Your children are intended to be raised by you, and eventually they will leave to cleave to somebody else. And that's the process. And when that happens, what do you got left? That your relationship, the husband-wife relationship, needs to stay that priority relationship and then lastly we find intimacy we find intimacy because it says that they were naked and they were unashamed in other words they were completely open to one another they were completely vulnerable there wasn't anything to hide they didn't feel like they had anything to hide they weren't covering up but you know what here's the warning we're going to see next week what happens and that is that adam and eve are going to invite sin into their life when they cave to temptation and allow sin to come, come into their life, what is the first thing that they do? They cover up. All of a sudden they feel like they have something to hide. And they may take fig leaves and they start covering up and they start hiding. And then God's going to come to Adam and say, what did you do? And Adam says, it's that woman. It's her. It wasn't me. The relationship that God intended to be a relationship of unity, priority, intimacy, will all of a sudden be a relationship of cover-up and blame. That's what happens when we allow sin into our life. If we allow ourselves to start thinking sinful thoughts, doing sinful actions, having sinful desires, we start giving in to those things, immediately you will have something to hide. Immediately you will start covering up. That's not what God wants for your marriage. It's not what God wants in His families. He wants this godly, fulfilling relationship. And it is impossible to have that kind of relationship while you're hiding things. We've got to have that openness, that, that intimacy. 
And all those things go together when you think about it. When you start covering up something, then the priority in your relationship starts to nosedive. The unity in your relationship starts to nosedive. And you could take either or the other two and apply them the same way. All right, so what does this mean for our life? Well, doctrinally, we see that God created marriage and He created it for a purpose, and we need to take His definition and understanding of marriage as that which is right for us and that which ought to be promoted within society. God created marriage, and God needs to be sovereign over marriage. What about devotionally? In my relationship with my wife, I need to seek this unity with my wife, trying to do things that enhance this unity with her. In my relationship with my wife, I need to make that the priority relationship of my life. Nothing else should trump this. Other my relationship with God, of course. But no other horizontal relationship should get in the way of my relationship with my wife. She needs my priority. And that relationship needs to be intimate. That I don't hide things from her. I don't do things that I feel like need to be hidden from her. I need to be open and honest with her. What about teenagers? What about you teenagers? You know what you need to do as young people or as a, as a single person that is not married? Is you need to hold marriage in high esteem. And you need to recognize, now it may not be your future. The Bible says that there are some people that singleness is a good thing. The Apostle Paul said that singleness was good for him. And he recommended it for others. Because he said, you know what, if, if I'm married, I'd have to be taking care of a wife. And look at the life that God had for the Apostle Paul. He was traveling most of the time. Traveling to different churches and different places and other regions to go start churches. He was in prison a lot too. So raising a family is hard to do when you're traveling all the time and in prison half the time. It just doesn't work that well. But the Apostle Paul said, I don't have to worry about any of that. I can just focus on the ministry that God's got for me. But he also recognized that you only have that opportunity if that's given to you from God. Most people find ourselves in the place where God says it's not good for man to be alone. And find ourselves in families, making families, getting married, having children. As a single person, you need to hold marriage in highest esteem. Because one, it is God's institution. It's his primary institution that he put in place within this, in this earth. And as we said at the beginning, as goes the family, so goes society within the society in which you live. And so it's important. Also, be preparing yourself. Be thinking about the value of marriage and what leads to a good marriage and what doesn't, and be developing your character and thinking along those lines. Throughout history and in the Bible, we see in the development of men, we see boys and we see men. And then about 50 years ago or so, maybe a little more, 60, first time in history, our culture developed a different bracket of people. So we have boys and girls, adolescents, men and women. What is an adolescent? An adolescent is somebody who wants some of the privileges of being a man, but not the responsibility that goes with it. As we get up to become adolescents, we want to be able to drive. We want to be able to do these freedoms. We want to be out from under our parents' authority. I look back at myself at that time. And what was I doing? I was rebelling against my parents. I was wanting the freedoms that came with manhood. But I wasn't ready for the responsibilities that came with manhood. So I wasn't a man yet. Dating, another new phenomenon. Dating's only been around for about that many years, too. It's a very new thing even within our culture. And what is dating? Well, dating can be the same thing. Want some of the privileges of a marriage relationship without the responsibility of a marriage relationship. And so there's a huge danger there. 
But you see what I'm talking about? Young people, unmarried people, you need to recognize the value of marriage and recognize God's program and recognize what marriage means. It, it, it means like, well, the uniting of two people to become one. But how can we do it? If Adam and Eve got their marriage put together by God in the Garden of Eden and they ended up turning into a marriage of covering and, and blaming, then what are my chances? You know, in the passages that we looked at in Ephesians chapter 5, I think give us the indication. Because our marriage relationship with one another is supposed to mirror the relationship between Christ and His church. And husbands are supposed to give themselves as Christ gave Himself for the church. And you know what? As I have Him, as I trust in Him, and I can recognize, I can see how He gave Himself for me, then that empowers me to give myself for her. The Gospel always calls us to do that. Jesus calls his disciples to love their enemies. He mentions lots of paradoxes like in, in dying you will live, in giving you will receive. There's a huge paradox to the gospel and that's exactly what he calls us to in the marriage.